And so, John, moving from that chief winemaker role to CEO, that must have been a really big change in focus and a test of your skills. How did it come about that you would be the CEO? I was totally unprepared for this change. Um, I was, uh, I'd been a winemaker for 30 years. Uh, that was been my total focus. And uh, I hadn't, hadn't expected that I might be approached to be the CEO. I was probably ready for it. After 30 years of winemaking, I actually felt in my own mind I'd used up all my initiatives. And the younger winemakers recently qualified that I was employing had a whole new suite of, of ideas that they were able to implement and I thought, really, it probably is time that I moved on and did something else, but I didn't know what it was going to be. Every, every year, our family got together on an off-site meeting as a sort of strategic planning meeting. Uh, they were getting quite formalised by the time, by 1988. And uh, anyway, as unexpectedly, uh, they said to me, that, well, my dad first said that he was planning to retire, and he told the whole group this, and he was at the age of 73, and I can well understand why he did want to retire. The business is growing very quickly and, and he hadn't taken training to move a, a business organisation to the next stage. Uh, but anyway, uh, the family had obviously discussed who was going to be the successor uh, to my dad and they put it to me that I, I'd been chosen or designated, you might say, <laughs> to be the next CEO. Well, I didn't think much about it at the time. I, I just accepted, feeling in my own mind that I did need a change. But what a change. I had <laughs> no idea what I was letting myself in for. Anyway, it was certainly a sea change. And at the time, I sensed the business was at quite a critical point. Um, businesses go through change points where they need to graduate from being just a family farm to just something much more structured and organised, and I realised something had to change. In fact, when I took on the CEO role, I invited some of the senior staff to come and tell me what they thought needed to happen, and one of the, one of the guys came and I asked one of the fellows, uh, how would you describe this place? And he said, I would describe it as rampant informality. <laughs> Classic. So that was a real cue to me that some formality needed to be introduced, yep. and and so that was that really preoccupied me for most of the time of my CEO role. So in order to uh, bring myself up to speed for running the company in my new role, uh, I felt I needed some external help, and I joined an organisation called the Executive Connection. It's a business group uh, made up of business people. Uh, groups of about 12 to 15 people with a, with a very talented leader in each case and I joined a group in Melbourne which was made up of, of uh, leaders from other companies, mostly family businesses, larger family businesses that had a turnover up to about $100 million and uh, we had a particularly good leader who was a very good coach uh, but they were very good training sessions and I learned a lot about how to transition a business from a family farm to a to something much bigger and more formal and I brought home a lot of those learnings and uh, every at every meeting one one was expected to take home a to-do list of at least two things after my 10 years in that organization I had a list of 99 to-dos <laughs> and I went through it and I found there were only about 10 I hadn't achieved so, wow. so I thought that that was quite an achievement Amazing. but it's a real challenge uh, bringing change into a business like that because a lot of the staff are used to the one-on-one relationship with the boss and to put in a structured organisation really didn't suit some people and we lost a few good people during that time. I was really saddened by that, but it, but it had to happen. 
Yes, I introduced a lot of new business structures, one of which was the, to have non-family member directors, uh, so they had some outside input. Somebody could look over my shoulder and say, John, you're either on the right track or you're on the wrong track, that I could have a bit different relationship from what you do with your family members. Uh, that was extremely helpful to me, and that, along with the tech organisation, really gave me a, a good, good bit of background to, to take the company on to the next stages. And do I remember correctly, John, that you took a trip over to Europe to catch up with a group of other family-owned, multi-generational businesses at some stage to, to sort of get an idea of how they sort of operate and keep the longevity of companies going? I, I think that was more a subject that Ross followed when... It was Ross, was it? Yeah, when he had a church or fellowship. But, but I did go overseas uh, along with Ross and Peter and another one industry member in 1972. We had eight weeks away where we visited California and... Italy and Spain and Portugal, France and Germany. It was a, a really terrific trip, but busy, busy. And, of course, everywhere we went, we were invited to stay out till dinner and we didn't get home till 2 o'clock in the morning. And our <laughs> next morning appointment was 8 o'clock. Yep. Well, I was absolutely exhausted when I got home. <laughs> but did we bring back some good information and good knowledge about the tra- traditions of Europe and California uh, that really stood by us uh, for all the years to come? So, John, outside of work and family, what's important to you? What do you do for fun and to keep you mentally strong? Yeah, well, I mentioned before that uh, I was a keen snow skier and fortunately June loved that as well. So that was our, our family sport and uh, for 30 years we, we, we gave that a really big bash. Uh, I loved it and I became quite competitive didn't have balls involved and that suited me well. So, <laughs> so <coughs> but I skied in the four events, the downhill, the salam, Langloff and jump and and uh, you, could get, you could win trophies for, for the combined events. And so I did quite well in that. I competed in the state and national titles. I didn't do too well in the nationals, but I got, got quite good results in state titles. John, I'm hoping it's not only me, but what is Langloff? Langloff is cross-country skiing. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, we used to call it Langloff. It was, it was the Nor- Norwegian, Norwegian term for, for cross-country for skiing. Cross-country skiing, yeah. gotcha, yep. Yeah, so that, that was probably my biggest strength. I had an injury during my racing career and, and damaged a knee so that uh, I really couldn't go on jumping anymore. So I concentrated on Langloff and finished up the next 20 years or probably about 20 years, mostly focusing on cross-country and Langloff. And it's lovely getting out in the open snow, on new snow, on a sunny day. There's something that you just can't beat for a good experience. So come, come about 1990, the ski injury was catching up with me and getting a bit of arthritis in it. And so I took up another sport activity, which was scuba diving. This was just not long after um, I took on the role of CEO. I went home to June pretty stressed out about something at one stage, and June said, why don't we go away for a week and have a, a week on Hamilton Island or somewhere like that? So we did, and when I was there, I discovered scuba diving. I took a, took a short course and, and thought, gee, this is for me. There's a whole world under the water that we don't see on top of the ground. So when I came home from that, I... I uh, got together 11 other guys from around the district, including some of our staff, and we went down to uh, Queenscliff, all got our certificates, and we had a little diving group for a number of years. Unfortunately, I've got to the age now where I think it's not sensible to go diving anymore, but in the meantime, I've had 200 dives around the coast of uh, Victoria and and the Great Barrier Reef, and quite a lot of diving over in in, Queen, in uh, New Zealand with Anishka's father, who had a, a really suitable dive boat. What was your best ever experience going scuba diving? 
Oh, that's like comparing apples with oranges. <laughs> I've come across a lot of sharks, and the very first time was probably the the most alarming. It was down off Cape Conran in southern Victoria, southern Gippsland. Uh, I was diving with three other mates, poking around in some kelp, picking up abalone for a feed that night, and I was a little bit ahead of the other two, the other three. And a shark swam across in the murky water in front of me. It had been a pretty windy conditions, and the water was pretty dirty. The shark was within about two metres of me, and uh, the others didn't see it. So I turned around, I'm making all sorts of signals about <laughs> danger and sharks and going up. And yeah. <laughs> anyway, they ignored me and kept on picking up abalone. <laughs> so anyway, when I told them about it afterwards, they said, gee, I wonder why you were so white when you got out of the water. <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> But there were there were lots of other incidents uh, that were really quite amazing. We we took a uh, a week diving tour out of Townsville, no Cairns, on one occasion, and went offshore overnight about two hundred kilometres to an island, that, a coral island, and uh, one of the activities there was to a shark feed, where all twelve of us on who were divers went over the edge, and we were told to sit on the sea floor about ten metres down with our backs to one another in a circle and they would tip some old fish scraps off the boat and, and the sharks would come in and feed on the fish scraps and then it'd go away again. Well, when they turned the fish, tipped the fish scraps in, the sharks already knew it was on because they were coming when, when we were sitting on the... when we were getting into the water. And anyway, there were sharks everywhere. There were little reef sharks and there were some, uh, quite a few big hammerhead sharks. And as they, they swam in, you could see their eyes watching us as they were heading for the fish scraps. And there was froth and bubbles and sharks and fish scraps everywhere for about five minutes until it was all cleaned up and then they all dispersed. Yeah. With, with everyone intact sitting on the Everybody closet. stayed put. Yeah, it was too terrifying to yeah, do anything yeah, else. <laughs> <laughs> and my, I've never used up so much air so quickly. So. Yeah. Check your monitor. Yeah. <laughs> uh, classic. And uh, you love travelling, John, as well. Yes, we love, love travelling, absolutely. In, in all of my holidays for probably the whole of my working career, June and I have loved to get away and have a break from the, the site. I think it's rejuvenating and refreshing to do something like that. In the early years, it was mostly in the high country here. Firstly, with a with a little Suzuki four-wheel drive that could poke around in the old forestry tracks that weren't much used in those days. And a lot of them, a lot of the tracks, we really, we'd go out for a weekend, often not see another person in the bush around here. But uh, we've extended that, of course, to cover the whole of Australia. And I've got a pretty track, big track record of the roads we've travelled now, and I must show it to you someday. It, uh, it's taken up much of our holiday time. We've got to know Australia pretty well. We love it. There's a heap to see around the coast, fantastic coastlines. Uh, there's a heap to see out in the desert country where people didn't go much in old days. A few more people get out there now. But there's something very special about being in an environment that's so pristine and natural. The stars at night and the colour of the rocky outcrops in the morning sun and the evening setting sun and, and the, just the simplicity of all... It's just magic. Yeah, so we love that. And uh, firstly, we started off in the early years just with a little two-man tent and then we graduated to a camper trailer as we got a bit older and needed a bit, little bit more comfort. Then we got an all-terrain motorhome, which a four-wheel drive, six-tonne truck, which were living quarters on the back of it. Uh, John and Anushka own that vehicle now. Uh, but that took us anywhere we wanted to go, including on beaches and any difficult sandy country. And uh, now we've... 
back down to a, a caravan, which limits our range of travel a little bit. But we still enjoy that remote environment very much. So I've always enjoyed as a personal desire to make things better in the community and in people I work with. I've worked amongst a lot of other really skilled and talented people in the business and in my chairmanships of various community organisations, I've also worked amongst some pretty talented people and you sort of ingest some of that knowledge and I was able to carry that on to, I think, give me a bit of a head start in, uh, in helping people who, who had needs in the community. So I finished up being quite active in that area and uh, probably I chaired about 20 organisations outside of Brown Brothers in, uh, in my off time and a lot of it, a lot of it was evening meetings. Well, I could do my work and the work in the day and do the meetings in the evening. Uh, but it was probably my involvement as a volunteer fireman that yielded the most beneficial results. You can, you can really do stuff if you've got the right people and the right equipment around a fire. And uh, I've finished up having a group officer's role, which is a role that sits between the volunteer fireman and the, and the career fireman. And uh, we've had, a, had the role of assessing the fire situation and getting the equipment and help in the number of tankers you needed and so on. So over, 400, over 450 call-outs I attended, I think perhaps in 30 years. It was only 15 a year, but it adds up over 30 years of activity. When, when I became CEO of Brown Brothers, I gave away the, the on-fire activity because I just couldn't drop what I was doing as a CEO of this company and all the people who were dependent on the company doing well to go and fight fires for a week. Mm. Uh, so I gave that away and uh, continued on supporting the fire brigade at meetings and, and various formal functions, organisational roles, and finished up getting some awards for that actually. It's, it's an amazing part of what you do, John. Loretta sent me through a list of a number, I'm sure it's not all of them, but a, lo- a number of the community involvement that's, that you've had over your career. And um, it, it's just, uh, it's quite uh, awe-inspiring. And I feel a bit like a poor specimen when I think about the community involvements that I've been in over my years. But, uh, you know, some of them, you mentioned the CFA, but the Wang Ski Club, Young Farmers, Wang Shire, the AWRI, Alpine Valley's Agri Forum, the Rutherglen Wine and Food Club, Victorian Wine Growers Association, and the list, as I say, goes on. You must be extremely passionate about the region and these activities to take the time away from the business and your family to contribute. I did have a sense of passion to make things better. That was always my way, uh, whether in the business or in the community. But uh, because I was sort of in a privileged position of having knowledge that I think could help a lot of different groups and uh, I was able to work with with groups of people and and keep them on side and and achieving whatever the objective was of the organisations. In earlier years, the business was less formal and I could just take time out easily and uh, pick it up at another time of the week or at night time. Where work hours were just when, when, when the work needed to be done rather than a really formal week. As far as I was concerned, the, re- the regular staff had formal work hours, but for me, the work just got done when it needed doing and often I'd put in a 16-hour day when the work needed to be doing and I'd take, probably be working less time here. But it allowed me the flexibility to participate in these community activities and uh, particularly to go away to fires at a moment's notice. So there wasn't any, any pain for me to get involved in these things. It was, it was a hobby where I felt I was achieving something. As I mentioned before, I got the credit for what everyone else achieved, in fact, yeah, which is rather nice. I, I did really enjoy that part of my career. I've, I've withdrawn from almost all of it now. I just do a few minor things. There are younger people now who are much more talented than I am 
and uh, who, are, who have moved into those roles and I'm happy to step aside and watch them achieve their results uh, as they do the similar things. You've gotten recognition for service for a lot of these community involvements. It's also a very impressive list. You've been awarded a centenary medal, a national medal, a CFA medal for your services to the fire brigade. But can you touch on one award for us that is just so impressive? You have an Officer of the Order of Australia Award that was presented in 2005. Can you share with our listeners a bit about this award and what it was presented for? Our listeners probably know that nominations for the Order of Australia Award uh, can be made by anybody. Anybody in, anybody in the community or anywhere can, can put in a nomination. It goes to the Governor-General's office uh, and they have a team of people who sort through the nominations and, deserve, and decide who is deserving. There are actually four levels that they award. Uh, the most common level is the Order of Australia Medal. There are no limits on the number of people who they can nominate, they can award each year at that level. Then the next level up was the Member of the Order of Australia. There's a limited number of those. I don't recall exactly how many, maybe 700 each year or something like that. Uh, my dad was awarded one of those for his con- contributions to the wine industry during his career. Uh, he was very proud of that. Then the next level up is uh, Officer in the Order of Australia, which is the award that I've been honoured with. And then the top award, of course, is the Companion in the Order of Australia. And we've just seen Margaret Court being offered that with a lot of controversy. It's a bit topical right now. It is topical. And it's interesting. I I think that people are confusing what she's achieved for Australia with what she believes. I think we're all entitled to believe what we want. Uh, And it doesn't matter. What you believe, if you've made a massive contribution to Australia like she has, she deserves that award. And, and am I right, that's the highest honour for an Aust- that an Australian can receive outside of the military, is that right? I think it is, yes, yeah. yes. So I, I, was, I was caught quite by surprise when, when I was awarded the medal. The proponent or the nominator is supposed to keep it all secret so that the, the, the one person being nominated doesn't know what's going to happen. I was on holidays in Brisbane, in Darwin actually, when I received a phone call from the Governor-General's office saying, uh, you've been nominated for an award in the Order of Australia, uh, would, you be, would you be prepared to accept it? And I took a deep <laughs> breath, probably <laughs> a long deep breath, and, and, I, and said, well, yes, of course. And, and uh, then when the award was actually announced on Queen's birthday, in 2005, I found out that it was a, a higher level of award at the of, of Officer of the Order of Australia. I couldn't believe what was happening to me. But anyway, I was very proud to receive that and, uh, and we went down to the, to the Government House in Victoria, in, in Melbourne, to receive that award along with a lot of other people. Did, did you ever find out who nominated you? No, I didn't. And, and I never got to see the nominations, so I don't actually know what went in the nomination. But in the citation that, that was uh, given to me at the day the medal was presented, it said it was for supporting the industry of supporting the sporting industry of skiing, for economic development, and for the wine industry. Oh. So three three parts. Three parts of things I've been involved in. Yeah, amazing. Somebody done a lot of homework. Yeah, and absolutely. And they, they never told me who, yeah. who'd done it. 
yeah, someone's got a secret. That yeah, they have. <laughs> oh, maybe they're, they're a listener to this podcast and they can let us know. Well, maybe. <laughs> All right, John. So we've just got a bit of a push at the moment on the uh, fruity range of wines for the sales team and that's the core of our listeners to this uh, Ferment podcast and, and that's with the Live Free promotion. And I just thought that we might sort of change tact a bit here and talk through the history of the Crucian Riesling because it's such an important wine in our history and to the success of our company, but also a really important wine within the fruity range portfolio. So can you share with our listeners how it all started with the Crucian Riesling? In the late 1960s and early 1970s, there was a a sort of a cyclical excess of white wine. We have sort of cyclical excesses in our industry. uh, And that that was the time when white wine was going a bit out of favour and and reds were taking over. And we had a glut of white wine in the nation and it made it hard for us to sell the white wines that we grew on this vineyard. And we had a surplus of white hermitage, or Trebbiano as it's known today. We had white Grenache, which is actually quite rare. Uh, Never hear about it now. And we had Tokay in excess. So we we were selling that as a a, a dry blend of the three wines together. We didn't really have the techniques to bottle a wine safely with residual sugar uh, without it blowing up the bottles with a bottle ferment. (laughs) So all of our white wines at that point in time were dry. So cold sterile filtration was just becoming available. It's a, a tool that was been used in the pharmaceutical industry, but it was graduating into the food industries and uh, so it became safe to bottle wine with sweetness so in 1971 I purchased a a bit of uh, grape juice concentrate from down the Murray Valley somewhere and blended that with the the dry wine and bottled that off and it actually sold like crazy it really took off and we realised that we were onto a good thing so in subsequent years we we did likewise but of course we didn't have the, the volume of grapes here in Millerwater to support the growing volumes, and, and it's just as the Mystic Park Crucian was coming into production that we needed a lot more volume, and we utilised that wine as the base for our what we called M171 in the first year. Yep. M standard for Moselle style. One was batch number one, and of course uh, 70, 71 was the vintage, vintage yep. and then we had an M M172 and an M173. We had a, a, an M2, didn't we? Uh, no. Yeah, we had an M2 for one or two of those years too. That was the pressings, which was a, an inferior quality product. But we needed the volume, so every, every, everything went there. So anyway. It, it got upgraded to M1. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so then uh, when the crucian started coming from the vineyard at Mystic Park in good volumes, uh, that, that became the basis for, for that product and we labelled it crucian. Uh, I think just crucian initially. Or maybe it was rude, maybe put some Riesling in. Uh, we, we also had a bit of a surplus of Riesling, so we blended that in too. And as the years went on, the volumes uh, required grew. The more Riesling we put in the blend, the better it tasted. So, so it became a bigger proportion of Riesling until it was up to about probably 50% Riesling uh, later on. But, but it was really, it was a product that really put us on our feet here. It, the sales were terrific, the margins were good. And we could source some material to, to expand it as, as volumes were required. So it's still uh, that style of wine has now become uh, a great thing for us. And, and started off with that new technology, new tool back in the early 1970s. 
Yeah, amazing. And it's had a, a lot of different names over its time as well with the, um, you know, being the Crucian Rhine Riesling Moselle and then the Crucian Riesling Moselle and now the Crucian Riesling just in in line with the, the labelling laws, you know, where we weren't able to use Moselle anymore and, That's right. um, you know, Rhine Riesling to depict the actual Riesling, not, yeah. not, not Crucian. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, it's, it's had a lot of different names over its years. Yeah, in those early days, of course, the word Moselle signified a wine that had residual sugar or quite sweet. And it was one way of telling the consumers this is not our traditional dry wine, it's something that's different. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was quite a good name at the time, but I completely understand the people in Germany who didn't want us using that name. <laughs> yeah. And just for our listeners, the 2020 vintage of the Crucian Riesling, it's very little has changed really in terms of what was going on in those early 70s to how the wine is made today. It's, uh, it, you know, the blend sort of still sits at around that sort of 70-30 Crucian to Riesling. It still has a similar sort of residual sugar re- level around about that sort of 35 grams per litre residual sugar. The wine fermentation is stopped through chilling we don't uh, have any oak influence or anything like that it's just tank fermentation to keep it beautiful and fresh and as vibrant as we possibly can and for me john it's my favorite wine served super super cold with a thai green curry i love that, <laughs> okay. that spice and that yes. sweetness together what about you what was your go-to when it came to matching with the, the crucian riesling well i suppose i use it uh, initially as a pre-dinner drink uh Along with along with a few aperitifs, yeah, we yeah. yeah we didn't have sparkling in those days, and there weren't many other sweetish wines around. Ours were amongst the first coming on the market. Brian Crozer was another one that was doing those sorts of wines when he first joined Hardy's back in those early days, and he he was using Riesling, which was really nice. Yeah, I just used a pre dinner drink pretty much because I like the dry wine, dry style wines with most of my food, and I still do. Yeah. Now, John, we've got a few questions that we ask all of our attendees that come on the ferment as an interview. So um, what was the first wine that you ever remember trying? That's a difficult one because (laughs) my dad and mum always had a glass of wine on the table as as long as I can recall. I'm sure it was there before I was born. And uh, at some stage there was also, also a glass for me and as my brothers came along for them as well. And there was always, when Dad poured himself and Mum a bit of wine, we were always poured a little bit too, just a sip. I don't really recall what the first one was I tasted, but I don't remember liking it a whole lot. <laughs> but uh, we were always always expected to to explain what 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 we were tasting, and it it was way, Dad's way of developing our wine language and what ability to describe wines and their characters. So no, I can't tell you what the first one was, but it, but it started. I reckon it would be before my primary school days. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. And what's your favourite wine within the Brown family wine group portfolio at the moment? Well, I've recently come across the Devil's Corner Riesling. It's just magnificent. Uh, I've always been a lover of Riesling. I cut my teeth on Riesling when I first left school. That was the, that was the primary white wine of the whole nation. And I still really enjoy a good Riesling. I enjoy Rieslings from Clare too, but, but that one from Tassie at the moment is absolutely excellent. And we, and we used to have a fantastic Riesling from the King Valley here as well, yeah. but uh, just got caught up in the growth of you know Clare Valley and Eden Valley, yeah. and and we we just didn't have the name for King Valley Rieslings. But it's so nice, you know, now that we're in Tasmania to have some Rieslings back yeah. into the to the the drinking repertoire of Brown Family Wine Group. Absolutely. No, I think those other regions are actually more suited to Riesling than we are just here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If it wasn't ours, 
what wine would you drink? Well, you better ask me what food you're serving first yeah, yeah. because <laughs> what wine I drink has to be matched with the food, just as we do in the Epicurean Centre. Yeah. But uh, what wine would I drink? I don't know. Uh, I'd, probably, I'd probably find a Riesling from Clare if I'm having fish. I'd probably find a Cabernet from Coonawarra if I'm having steak. Nice. Probably a McLaren Vial Shiraz. Or maybe a Barossa Valley Shiraz. Beautiful. That's why I make my choice. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and I like to keep an eye on what others are doing too, I might say. <laughs> yeah. And John, what's the best thing that's happened to you personally over the last 12 months? Yeah, well, apart from ducking the COVID thing, <laughs> <laughs> I've had a replacement ankle and that, that's overcome a very painful arthritic ankle that was a result of my football injuries some 60 years ago. Wow. Yeah. So I'm getting back to walking properly again. Oh, how nice is mm. that? Mm. And who are you most grateful for this week? Well, not only this week, but my good wife, June, who's, who I've been grateful for for now 2,860 weeks since we were married in 1965. And counting. That's unreal. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. And what are you most looking forward to over the next six months to a year? Well, traditionally, uh, June and I have headed off in the winter time since we stopped skiing uh, and enjoyed the northern climbs of Australia and a lot of the outback travel. Uh, I'd like to be doing more of that. Uh, not that there are many places we haven't visited already, but we'd like to re revisit some of them. Uh, and it's dependent really on whether the borders are open on a basis where we can be sure, assured of getting back home again. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it's a bit up in the air at the moment, but, yeah. but that's what we'll do when the time comes. Maybe the perfect time will be mid this year when you can escape our winter months and get up into the north, get a bit, war get mm. a bit of warmth about it. Right. All right, brilliant. All right, well, thank you so much, John, for coming on The Ferment today. It's always a pleasure to listen to you. And as I mentioned at the start, I, I pick up something new every time and this time I've picked up at least five or six new things that I didn't know about you or the winery, so that's been fantastic. So thank you so much for coming on The Ferment today and sharing uh, your amazing story. You're welcome. How good was that everyone? If you have any feedback for us at The Ferment, please send us an email, theferment at brownfwg.com.au. Also, don't forget to check out our Tasting Note podcast. Thanks for listening to The Ferment everyone. Stay safe out there, chase hard, look out for each other.